I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we We would be dead. frustrating and mysterious case. Oh boy. Yeah. And that is in case you didn't read either title, The Disappearance and Murder of Alonzo Brooks. Um, We can say murder now because that has been officially declared. And remember, fiends, this case is yet to be solved. It's still very much ongoing and an active investigation. So we have to tread lightly. Mm Mm-hmm. And not just because we don't want to, like, offend anyone, but because I would never want to hinder this investigation. Right. In any way. Right. So we are not just protecting ourselves. We are also protecting them. Mm -hmm. So this means that we can give you all of the available facts and some very interesting history. We have some history this week. Yeah. And we can present theories that a lot of people have that I think some are very Mm well-founded. And we can speculate based on what we have learned, but we can't give you an answer or say the word definitely ever. I hate that. (laughs) I hate it. I know you hate it more than I do. I know. I'm getting over it. I'm doing better. I've done more Mm -hmm. like unsolved cases this this year or in the past few months than we have in the past. Right. Okay. Getting there. (laughs) Um, But we'll be diving into a lot of sketchy anonymous information and web theories this week. So we do warn you that we are wandering out of proven fact territory and please take that to heart. Um, And also some of the language is a little like not polished. Right. (laughs) People shouting on a comment board. Also, if you have not listened to last week's episode, you're going to want to go back and do that right now. Because Yeah, we'll wait. Go ahead. You done? You done? Okay, good. Good. In the interest of time, I'm not going to be able to rehash the whole timeline this week So because we, we have a lot of ground to cover. So glad that you went and did that. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and before we dive right back into this case, I must remind you all that Leslie and I require four things to survive. Oh, tell me. Food. Mm-hmm. Love food. Water. Yeah. Yeah. Oxygen. H2O. O2. And one more thing. Mm. What could mm. it be? What could we require, Leslie? The, the, it's coming to you. I can hear it. Validation. A hill worth dying on. Yeah, that's it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> and the first three we have covered, we can do food, water, and oxygen. But mm-hmm. that last one, unfortunately, it's kind of against the rules to just give it to ourselves. For sure. Yeah. But as luck would have it, our fiends are absolutely allowed to help us out there. Ooh, how? But how, you must be asking yourself. Yes. Well, I will tell you, simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for you. Isn't that nice? It's so nice. So nice. But if you just can't wait for more We Would Be Dead in your life, don't worry, you don't have to. Oh my God. Yeah. You can support us over on Patreon. 
I like when you go bassy for Patreon. <laughs> I'm waiting for the week you do it with validation. Yeah. <laughs> validation. <laughs> So on Patreon, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special minisodes, our weekly after-show host mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch ideas, and on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons, so come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. So nice. It is a nice place to be. I like it. Mm -hmm. And if all that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. That's the best one. Mm -hmm. Leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell that person around the corner whose Christmas lights still go on every night. Claudia. That's quick. Yeah. Claudia, like, does not have neutral lights either. They're, like, big inflatables. Like, yeah. of a penguin and a scarf yeah. and stuff. It's okay, Claudia. You know what? You actually make us all feel a little bit better about ourselves. Yeah, for sure. Thank really you. Like Claudia. She's probably, like, a little bit chaotic, but fun. Mm-hmm. So when you go to her house, she's like, sorry, it's still Christmas. <laughs> but that's, like, our vibe. <laughs> yeah, it is our vibe. I like Claudia. We'll probably drink wine and laugh at I mean, at I Christmas almost called her Holly, but... Close, yeah. <laughs> but I've been really trying hard to not have out-of-date decorations up. Yeah, yeah. You got them down before February. I got them down early because not not as early as I could have, but only because I had a Christmas party here oh, right, the right. second week in January. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I get a pass on that one. All right, Claudia. I mean Holly. <laughs> Whatever. Claudia's great. Then your friends and Claudia, who is great, can become fiends. <laughs> and we can all hang out together. In other news, we are turning three. Wow. I know. I um always forget to like celebrate milestones. I know. I just sit here and work. Uh, this momentous occasion snuck up on me. Did you realize that was no. happening? Nope. February 11th. That's our birthday. Did you I was know? I still like, we're, we're like two years in. No, no. <laughs> February 11th is number three. Wow. Um, and I am so proud. My little baby is I turning know. three. My little baby is turning three. And I'm very proud of it and all that we have done, the community we have created, and the stories we have told. And I'm trying to find a way to celebrate this as we speak, but um, it's not there yet. And hopefully by the time this comes out, it's all together and it's on all of our socials. And mm -hmm. you guys are like, I know what you're talking about. That's going to be fun. Right. We'll so figure it out. Check it we'll out. do it. Yeah. Um, I have asked some of our, um, like our little fiend focus group mm -hmm. friends and people suggested we do like a big group Zoom. Right. So we can all interact at the same time. Mm -hmm. I thought that might be fun. Here's an idea, too. Sure. On our group feed, if I know a few of you have actually commented to me and said that you would like to put together the the list of our neighborhood cast. Oh, yeah. So maybe everybody could divvy up a certain amount of episodes. I don't even know which episode we started it on, but it goes back pretty far. The Denver Spider-Man. The Denver Spider-Man. That's Spider -Man. where we started. Oh. That's where our neighborhood started because Pam is in that story. And she that's the first and one. And that's, I'm pretty sure... That it all comes back to Pam. Okay. I might have done the little bit beforehand, but we weren't stringing together. I don't think we were stringing together a neighborhood before Pam. Before Pam. <laughs> but yes, but they are, they should all be there. So maybe everybody could like divvy up and we can get like our neighborhood cast. Come together. to the Zoom dressed as your favorite character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see some Carls. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see a Pam. Maybe a Claudia. 
Yeah. Dibs on Claudia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really fun. That's like cool. the weirdest theme party ever. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll talk about it. Come over to our Facebook group if you're not there and you can weigh in on this. Mm-hmm. Anywho, I'm sure it's going to be a really fun thing. All right. That's all I have in the way of news this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? No. Oh, boy. No. You really, really weighed that heavily first. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to make sure. You know, that's fine. All right, then. On with the show. When we left off, it was 2019, 15 years after Alondazo Brooks had disappeared from a farmhouse in Lacine, Kansas, and then reappeared a month later, dead in Middle Creek, just 200 meters from said house. According to the medical examiner, Alonzo's cause of death was a complete mystery, and so the autopsy report read the dreaded undetermined. That is like the kiss of death on a lot of cases, because you can't, you don't even know where to go with it. They're, they're, they're just throwing up their hands like, well, they could have killed themselves, they could have been killed, or it could have been an accident. I don't know. Mm. Then you're like, uh, right. what do we even do with this? Right. So... It seems clear to Alonzo's family that this was a homicide, and it seemed clear to the police that at the very least, his body had been moved, which seems to me to indicate either purpose or panic. Other people were involved no, either way. But since the medical examiner saw no physical evidence of foul play, it seemed that they were at an impasse. Now, there has also been some argument um, as to any kind of toxicology done on Alonzo. First of all, Everybody who is saying, like, they found this, that, and the other thing drug-wise. It's been a month mm-hmm. when they get the body. Not everything's going to stay in your body for that right. long. But second of all, the drugs that people talk about, because a lot of people are like, he was drunk and high and he fell in the creek, were alcohol and marijuana. Mm-hmm. They were not, like, heroin and crystal meth. Right. So while you can definitely be real impaired from alcohol and marijuana, it's not the same kind of, like, psychosis that's going to lead you to like think it's time to go swimming in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. at least in my opinion and limited experience right although so I will just mention sure no this I just what this is here for is that if he was depending on how drunk he was Mm -hmm. he could drown in shallow water yeah no that's a good point though if he drowned that way it probably would have been because he was face down in it Yes? Is that what we're thinking? Yeah. And there was no water in his lungs. Right. Okay. Which we will talk about more later. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to say he drowned and there's no water in his lungs, mm-hmm. it would have to be a phenomenon called dry drowning, okay. which you wouldn't really do if you were face down drunk. Okay. Because that's got to be like you come back from it. Okay. We'll, we'll get into this more later. I'm just planting mm-hmm. that seed right now because okay. that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. So Alonzo's family had been allowed to bury him, and so they did, at a quiet and well-kept Catholic cemetery in Topeka, where Alonzo had grown up. The police interviewed people, and like hundreds of people, time and time again. And eventually, without further evidence or a confession, the case was closed. And then, unsolved mysteries came along. While it may not have gotten every single thing right, the episode of Unsolved Mysteries devoted to Alonzo's case did open a major can of worms. And it also caught the eye of a man named Stephen McAllister. I like to imagine he was Kevin McAllister's uncle or something. <laughs> Doesn't that make it fun? Yeah, yeah. Sure does. 
Uh, and at this point, Kevin McAllister was the United States District Attorney for the state of Kansas. So he's hmm. the DA. After seeing the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, so this is directly a consequence of Unsolved Mysteries. Okay. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Stephen McAllister decided to reopen Alonzo's case. He was like, that is in my state, and that is not right. <laughs> so he thought, time to figure some shit out. And he went big, too. He took it to the FBI. The FBI agreed to reopen it and offered up a $100,000 reward to anyone with information about Alonzo's death. Now, yes, if you are a teen or now, you know, Alonzo is my age, now 40-something, mm -hmm. so you've gone through a lot of your life, who was at this party and you knew what happened and the, the median income in these towns is not super high mm -hmm. and you could get $100,000 for an anonymous, essentially, tip and nobody did it, there's some serious fear going on there. Wow. Yeah, $100,000. That's, that's life-changing money. Mm -hmm. So investigators rounded up all the guests at the party yet again, but they also had some new information about a second party that went on that night simultaneously. Doesn't sound too related, except for a lot of people started out, or not a lot, a group of people started out at this other party and then came to the second party, the one at the farmhouse where Alonzo was, mm -hmm. later in the night. Okay. So... They could have arrived when not that many people was, were still there. And so their names were not on the list, but they were there at the end of the night. Right. So these people are very valid. They are key players in this thing. And for whatever reason, they may not have come forward on their own. Again, I'm telling you, there is like heavy fear going mm. on here. So they round up those people. Um, and a lot of them did say they saw Alonzo that night. And they provide new information. And what I am told is some new forensic evidence. But we don't know what any of that is. We just know that in 2019, they found some shit out. And if that weren't enough, Stephen McAllister also decided that maybe they should take a look into the original autopsy because, again, kiss of death on that undetermined. Right. And he did not like what he saw. Neither did we. Right. <laughs> Neither did anyone. But one thing he noticed was that the autopsy was conducted by Dr. Eric Mitchell, a name he did not like. You see, Dr. Mitchell and all his convictions did not have a great reputation beyond, I don't know, his own front door. What I have written down is the great state of Kansas, but that's not even true. He didn't have a great reputation in a lot of places. And later, he would not have a great reputation within his community, even more so. But I'm going to get to all of this in a second. You see, this is not the first place where Dr. Mitchell had served as medical examiner. So people may not have loved him there, but they didn't know all of it. Okay. Um, and it also wouldn't be the last. He bounced around a lot. Mm. But he sure did leave a trail of destruction in his wake. Previously, Dr. Mitchell had worked in Syracuse, New York, as the Onondaga County Medical Examiner. And according to the New York Times, he was forced to leave this position because of some insane allegations. Quote, this is from the New York Times. I will provide a link to the article in the show notes. Among other things, prosecutors found that Dr. Mitchell routinely removed organs from corpses without the consent of the victim's families and improperly stored skeletons and body parts in his office. The district attorney began investigating Dr. Mitchell when it was revealed that a man convicted of child pornography, child sex abuse materials, that's what we call it, and photographs taken of himself with a corpse 
in the medical examiner's office. The Times went on to explain, quote, Dr. Mitchell has been the county medical examiner for 10 years. Over the last year, he has come under intense criticism because of accusations by current and former employees that he engaged in unethical and unprofessional illegal activities. District Attorney William Fitzpatrick announced today that a four-month investigation by his office corroborated many of the allegations. And I said that word right. First try. Good job. Thank you. Mr. Fitzpatrick said not only was the man not authorized to be in the morgue, but that he helped a former morgue employee, Joseph Contrera, stitch up the corpse after an autopsy. You could just bring a friend and be like, you want to stitch up a body? And they'd be like, yeah. Why don't we know anybody like this? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Contrera is serving a prison term for molesting young boys. Okay, there you go. Stitching up bodies. Well, maybe that was like therapy. Anytime you think about molesting young boys, come to the morgue. You can stitch up a body with me. (laughs) I don't even want to do the mental gymnastics it would take (laughs) for that to work. It's like a monotonous activity. Is that what we're thinking? Yes. Like yeah, therapy? It keeps the hands busy. Like you're cross-stitching or yes. something. And by the end of it, you're exhausted. You just go home. Okay. Yeah. Well, the district attorney also Could found... through those feelings, huh? <laughs> you know what? You're, you're so good at this. <laughs> the district attorney also found that morgue employees took photographs of one another in playful poses over the body of a female suicide victim. Mm. Classy. And that they provided the pathology department. Here is the kicker at the University Hospital in Syracuse with bladders and kidneys from about 150 bodies without family consent. What? That is some Burke and hair nonsense right there. Yeah. This is body snatching shit. They were like selling organs, basically. Oh, wow. <sighs> so Dr. Sellier Bladder might not have been <laughs> the most reliable source of information after all. Right. His, uh, his credibility is very compromised mm-hmm. at this point. I'd say so. And so in July of 2020, the FBI had Alonzo's body exhumed and a second autopsy was performed by forensic experts at Dover Air Force Base. And their findings were different. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, right? (laughs) Who would have thought? Oh, so weird. Uh, And this exhumation is, again, with full consent of the family. There was no kind of people Mm -hmm. contesting it. This, everybody wanted it. Mm -hmm. Just saying, because sometimes these happen and people are mad. Right. (laughs) That's not the case. So the uh, experts at Dover Air Force Base found that Alonzo's death could absolutely be declared a homicide. They cited that the advanced decomposition in his neck area was not consistent with normal decomposition patterns. And I know that's weird jargon, but that means that his neck was probably already banged up when he died. Mm. So if your neck's already fucked up, it's probably going to decompose faster than the rest of you. Remember when Dr. Mitchell said his neck was just too decomposed to examine? He was like, all the soft tissue's gone. I can't declare anything. Right. And he was quoted as saying there was no soft tissue left. And there is video of him saying there is no soft tissue left, unlike the rest of his body, which was like pretty full of soft tissue. Mm-hmm. And as we all suspected, that was totally incorrect. His, his neck was damaged, not totally decomposed. There is a mm-hmm. difference. Okay. Well done, Dr. Skeletons in the Closet. And as much as I like making up funny names for that guy, because I could do it all day, I really wish I could say that that was the end of his shenanigans. But this really is more of a can't stop, won't stop situation. Okay. Yeah. So, of course, he moved on to another town and did more crazy shit afterwards. Mm. According to NPR in Kansas City in an article by Blaze Mesa that ran just three weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. Just in the beginning of January, Dr. Mitchell 
has been serving as the Douglas County Coroner. Demoted, I think, because coroner is not a medical examiner, officially, and has not been doing a real good job. Quote, Mitchell has spent a decade testifying in just under a dozen Kansas counties, and his testimony has helped lead to murder convictions. But news articles, defendants, and others have argued that he doesn't always get it right. The article then goes on to cite examples where Dr. Mitchell used, quote, junk science in his testimonies and reports that put more than one innocent person behind bars. In fact, they have three separate examples. Mm. Back to Alonzo. I just wanted to add that little P.S. because, like, he didn't stop. He kept doing it. Anyway, Stephen McAllister, superhero, also revealed that in his expert's exploration, of this like second party. Remember I spoke about there was another party in Lysine that night. Investigators discovered that there were, quote, a lot of rather violent and aggressive partiers. And that's the group that moved from the other party to the farmhouse party. So it was a mm. bunch of people that were looking for a fight. Okay. We can speculate on that a little yeah. bit, but it is of note. Okay, where are we now? It's definitely a homicide, right? Damage to Alonzo's neck, aggressive people coming in hot at the end of the night. Alonzo was at this party without any of his friends. This is starting to add up, right? Yeah, I'd say so. There are still other factors to consider, though. Hmm. In addition to ruling his death a homicide, the FBI said that they were looking into this as most likely a hate crime. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. While a few sunny dispositioned locals will try and tell you that Lacine is a place where people don't see color, that's just because everyone there is white. Hmm. Also, it's a lie. But to understand how deep and covert racism in Kansas can be, we have to go back in time a little. So let's start with the location of this farmhouse. So, I found the address. Good job, Holly. I, I won't give it because that's not ethical because the, the same person still owns it. Right. This, this person has owned it for a really long time. But here's a better description of what we're dealing with. Lacey and Proper is only one and a half square miles in size. And it is a little town. There's a library and a school and a couple restaurants. One is called the Wagon Wheel and everyone really likes it. Mm -hmm. And the other is a gas station convenience store combo called Casey's and everyone doesn't like it. <laughs> so, but here's where the language in this case gets a little confusing because when you hear this crime took place in Lacine, if you're anything like me, you look up the square mileage and you think about how impossible it seems to refer to 1.5 square miles of a town as nothing but acres of dark farmland. Right. Where no one could find you ever. Lysine is tiny. How is that true? Aha. Uh -huh. But the farmhouse is not in Lysine proper. Okay. You see, Lysine is just a little pocket of the much larger Lincoln Township because Lynn County is divided into townships. Lincoln is 52 square miles. Mm. And it houses Lysine, the even smaller city, Lynn Valley, and then just 50 miles of farms. Okay along the Kansas-Missouri state line. It's right, Missouri's like spitting distance from this, mm -hmm. so we're right there. Now, this adds up a lot better in my head. We are in dark nothingness, mm -hmm. 50 miles of it. So the farmhouse is also on the major highway that goes through Lacine. It's on route, I think it's 152. So there's a little town, and then you go through that town into the darkness for a while, and then the house has a long, narrow road off the highway that then leads to a dirt driveway. Okay. So there are steps to get to this house. It's very isolated, and it's set in the middle of a 162.8-acre property. Oh, wow. Huge. Yeah. 
And to give you an idea of just how small the house is in comparison, like this isn't a mansion. It's a one floor, four bedroom, one bathroom ranch house built in 1880. Mm-hmm. Most of this place is just grass, trees, a creek, and probably angry ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but what is the location itself? Well, to start, Lacine is 96% white to this day. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln Township as a whole, it's 98% white. Okay. So it gets whiter the further you go out into the sticks. Mm-hmm. According to the statistics, there are also 0.1 gay people there. Good to know. Somebody there is a little bit gay. Just a little bit. Could be anybody. Oh, boy. Well, one little 10%. <laughs> but that's very white. Yeah. In fact, it's probably the whitest place I've ever seen in my life. And I went through Facebook boards and museum websites, community center activities and high school yearbooks. I combed through census reports and statistics as far back as I could. And um, there have been approximately three, and I'm not exaggerating, about three Black people in Lincoln Township in the past 100 years. Yeah. So anyone claiming that there were three Black guys at the party with Alonzo, either all of them were there or they were imported. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So I'm going to tell you something right here and now. You do not get that white by accident. And you don't stay that white by accident. Mm-hmm. Your town is not 98% white. Just, whoops. It just is. that It is what it is. Right. But all of this is pretty par for the course in Kansas. Because they publicly appeared on the free state right side of history during the Civil War. Right? Kansas is a free state. Mm-hmm. And Kansas likes to present itself as a land that is free of racism. And maybe that's true in some towns, but that's because no one has ever seen a Black person not one time in their life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, I urge you to remember that Kansas hides behind John Brown abolitionist exterior stuff. So they did have, they did have a very famous abolitionist movement. They right. did have people who fought to free slaves. But in reality, there is also a very dark racist undercurrent that most of the white people who live there seem to either conveniently not mention Mm -hmm. or forget or are completely unaware of. Right. And frankly, I don't know which one is worse. They're Mm -hmm. all bad. According to his piece for Kansas Public Radio titled Racist History Still Haunts Hayes and Other Kansas Towns, journalist David Kondo sums it up something like this. Quote, Kansas wanted to be a free state so they could get rid of all the black folks, said Carmeletta Williams, executive director of the Black Archives of Mid-America in Kansas City. They didn't want any free or enslaved in its boundaries. To be clear, abolitionists fought for the freedom of African-Americans in the bleeding Kansas battles leading up to the Civil War. But most of the northern settlers who migrated to Kansas during that time were free soilers who wanted land to go to white homesteaders and not plantations. This is very different than just wanting freedom for all. It's Mm -hmm. like, we want the land, not those people who own slaves. In December of 1885, supporters of the anti-slavery Free State Party ratified Kansas's first constitution and voted 1,287 to 453 to also ban free Black people from the territory. Mm -hmm. When Kansas finally became a state around five years later, the slavery ban stuck. But the new constitution allowed African Americans to settle in the state. So while John Brown may have rallied against slavery with fiery, righteous Christian violence, while in Kansas, he did so in what many call an in-state civil war. And he didn't win. Mm -hmm. 
According to historian Brent S. M. Campney, quote, in the small towns of Kansas, you don't really have any kind of segregation because black people in general just don't come to those towns. So it really does play itself out very, very differently than, say, the civil rights movement in the Deep South. Now, if we couple this information with the cries of people in Lacine say, quote, if you're black, don't let the sun hit your back, that are crawling through the comments of every single story about Alonzo, then we also have another problem. According to many locals, many, many, many locals, Lacine was what we call a sundown town which is a particularly ugly piece of American history that I'm going to let Leslie talk about. Lovely. Take it away, Leslie. All right. So before I completely start, I just want to cite some of my sources. Sure. So Britannica Online. Love it. Blackpast.org. Good. Wikipedia, because always. (laughs) Wikipedia is actually sourced very well now. It is. For anybody who wants to be Mm -hmm. mad at it. Yeah. And America's Black Holocaust Museum website. Ooh. Yeah. So... Sundown towns are all-white communities, neighborhoods, or counties that use discriminatory local laws, intimidation, or violence to keep their town all-white. The term derives from the posted or verbal warnings issued toward Black communities that although they might be allowed to work or travel in a town during the daytime, they must leave by sundown or suffer the consequences. Beginning in about 1890 and continuing until 1968, white Americans established thousands of towns across the United States for whites only. Many towns drove out their black populations, then posted sundown signs. Others passed laws barring African Americans after dark or prohibiting them from owning or renting property. Still, others just harassed and even killed those who violated the custom. Some sundown towns also kept out Jews, Chinese, Mexicans, Native Americans, and other groups. Mexican is noteworthy because Alonzo is Black and Mexican. Mm -hmm. Many of us associate these sundown towns with the South. However, southern sundown towns are rare and the majority are in the North, West, and East. For example, Mississippi only had four sundown towns, whereas Illinois was found to have 465 by the 1930s. Good God. Mm Mm-hmm. New Jersey had a lot of them, too. Yeah. But before I get too far ahead, let's talk about how such racist towns came about. Yes, please. After slavery and the Civil War ended in 1865, African Americans began moving everywhere for about 25 years. Most, however, were unable to leave the South. And even though slavery was abolished, a new law was in effect that felt a lot like slavery. The system became known as Jim Crow. Under Jim Crow, Blacks could not vote. They cannot be accommodated at restaurants, parks, hotels, or schools used by whites, among a lot of other things. Those who attempted to defy Jim Crow laws often faced arrest, fines, jail sentences, violence, and death. So seeing how things weren't getting any better for them in the South, many hoped to find better jobs elsewhere, and thus the Great Migration of 1910. Approximately 6 million African Americans moved from the American South to Northern, Midwestern, and Western states, roughly from the 1910s until the 1970s. Some communities accepted Black migrants, and though they may have found jobs working as servants and gardeners for white people's homes, they were still living in their communities and it was fairly mixed. Unfortunately, this was not the case for all towns, many of which actively discouraged them from settling down in their neighborhoods thus sparking racism across the country. 
To enforce racial segregation, methods ranged from episodes of collective violence, such as public lynchings, to ongoing housing discrimination, including exclusionary housing covenants preventing non-white people from owning or renting property. And again, non-white people. So again, this is like any minority as well. White mobs were attacking Black neighborhoods by looting, burning, and killing in order to drive them as far away from their towns as possible. If one Black person was found or accused of a criminal act, the white community would blame the entire Black community and would band together to run them out through, like, threats, violent acts, arson, anything until they all left. So here's one really horrific example of this and very famous. In 1930 in Marion, Indiana, three black teenagers were arrested and charged for the robbery and murder of 23-year-old white male Claude Dieter and the rape of Dieter's fiance, 19-year-old Mary Ball. Dieter and his fiance were having a date night in Lover's Lane when they were attacked. According to Mary, her fiance was robbed and then shot and then they raped her. She yelled for help and they were able to get Dieter to the hospital where he died shortly after. Meanwhile, police arrested 19-year-olds Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith and 16-year-old James Cameron for the crimes. The boys were beaten and interrogated by the sheriff and his men and then locked in a cell to await trial. News of the shooting and rape got around fast in the town and to surrounding areas because everybody was like calling like yeah. the areas mm-hmm. around they too. They formed lynch mobs real fast. Mm-hmm. Once Dieter's death was confirmed, Word that a hanging was planned reached across Indiana. Thousands of white people showed up outside the prison and demanded the boys be turned over to them to be hanged. The sheriff refused, and so several young men in the crowd broke into the jail using sledgehammers. Thomas Ship was pulled out first. The mob beat him and hanged him from the window bars of the jail. The crowd then dragged Abram Smith down the street to the courthouse and prepared to hang him from a large tree. When he tried to remove the noose from his neck, the mob stabbed him and broke his arms before finally hanging him. Once the mob had brought Ship's lifeless corpse over to hang next to Smith, local photographer Lawrence uh, Bettler was called over to take a photo of the crowd and hang in the two hanged men. So this is a famous photo and it's hard to look at. It is hard to look at. Um, but you see people in this crowd, like, and you I, see I their wish faces. I could tell you that this is like a shocking, isolated incident, but I have like pretty much the same story happened in Hayes, Kansas. Exactly. Yeah. From jails, too. They would go into jails and yep. pull people out. Yep. Finally, the mob returned to jail and abducted James Cameron, the 16 year old, beating him and taking him to be hanged next to the other two. However, a voice from the crowd suddenly rang out, proclaiming Cameron's innocence, and the crowd calmed down. The police took him to another jail out of town. This incident led to over 200 Black members of the community deciding to relocate for their own safety, while some stayed to defend their homes, which is exactly what the town of Marion wanted to happen. Cameron spent a year in jail awaiting trial. At his trial, Mary Ball testified that she had not been raped after all. Yeah, of course. The all-white jury believed Cameron's story. He said that he had run away from Lover's Lane when he recognized Claude Dieter. So, like, they were going to, like, rob this guy. Mm-hmm. But he, like, recognized Claude as one of his regular shoeshine customers. So he's like, well, I don't, I don't want to, like, do that. He'll know who I am. And so he was not there when Dieter was shot. So he didn't know, like, mm-hmm. how that came about. 
The judge sentenced Cameron to two to 21 years as an accessory before the fact. He served four years in the Indiana State Reformatory before being paroled. Despite photographic evidence and eyewitness testimonies, no one in the lynch mob was ever arrested. 48 years later, in 1993, Indiana Governor Evan Bay officially, sorry, yeah, Governor Evan Bay, B-A-Y-H, officially pardoned Cameron in the ceremony of Marion. Cameron was also given the key to the city. And during his life, Cameron became an entrepreneur, father of five civil rights activists, and founder of America's Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee, Missouri. He taught people to forgive but not forget and to be better, not bitter. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. Oh, actually, I wanted to say um, he mentioned that I think it was Thomas Ship. Mm-hmm. So he was almost like the, he was one of the 19-year-olds and he was kind of, I would say he might have been more like the orchestrator of just okay. like going out and, and robbing people sometimes mm-hmm. at night. So. Cameron will describe him as he did do like petty thefts and he would just try to like get some money from people. But he said that a lot of people in his community would try to talk Thomas out of, you know, causing trouble and going out. He was just like, you you live in a good town now. You're safe. This is fine. Like you have a good family. You don't and you have a good job. You don't need to go out and rob people. Yeah. But Thomas and his family came from a Southern community and he said that he was just still so angry at white people. Okay. So that's probably what led him to keep doing that. Whereas Cameron was just kind of young and was like, I'll just hang out with you guys. And then was like, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> this is like an, also a very important to like look at the bones of this story. Mm-hmm. Look at this like it involves a white woman saying she was taken advantage of. Then the town enacting their own justice. Mm-hmm. Black men die. And everyone protects everyone else. Right. This is basically a template. Mm -hmm. And one that we're going to explore for this case later. Mm -hmm. But it's just very important. That story is is almost like a, like a, I don't know, like you said, it's like a template that every, it it happens again and again and again and again. That's Emmett Till. It's all, they're Mm -hmm. all very similar. Yep. All right. So moving on a little bit. Black migrants found themselves in no better situation from once they came. Many imagined finding homes in small little towns like they had in the South. However, while the white folks bought new homes in the suburbs and nicer housing in the cities, non-whites were made to live in the rundown neighborhoods. In the 1930s to 40s, the federal government set up the FHA, which is Federal Housing Administration Program. This made home ownership affordable for millions of average Americans. However, property values and eligibility for loans were tied to race, so Blacks got almost none of the loans. There were also written covenants and informal gentlemen's agreements between realtors and sellers to exclude Blacks from white neighborhoods. This critically important method of building family security and wealth was denied to most African Americans and other minorities. Many towns prided themselves with being all white. In the 1940s, Edmond, Oklahoma promoted itself on postcards with the slogan, a good place to live, no Negroes. Great. The town of Mena, Arkansas advertised itself as cool summers, mild winters, no blizzards, no Negroes. Oh my God. And there were hundreds more like this and even more racist words used. Of course. 
The rise of sundown towns made it difficult and dangerous for Black travelers on long distances by car. It was common for Black motorists entering sundown towns to be followed by police or locals all the way through the town limits. Uh, Businesses that served or hired non-white people were boycotted and harassed by the white locals, often ending in violence or arson or just until they were like, okay, fine, like we won't serve them anymore. In 1930, for instance, 44 of the 89 counties along the famed Route 66 from Chicago to Los Angeles featured no motels or restaurants and prohibited Blacks from entering after dark. In response, Victor H. Green, a postal worker from Harlem, compiled the Negro Motorist Green Book, a guide to accommodations that served Black travelers. And the guide was published in 1936 to 19. 19- 66 and at its height of popularity was used by 2 million people. Do you know there's an outcry for that to be made again? Yeah. Isn't that so sad? Mm -hmm. Shortly after passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which outlawed the types of racial discriminations that had made the Green Book necessary, publication ceased and it fell into obscurity. And now we're, I guess, wanting it back again. There are, I read a couple articles where where, um, Black people who live in these towns were like, I'd love to know where I can't go. Yeah. Because I, I still can't go same. places. That's also the same even for the LGBTQ community. Like, I know they tried to do that with Google. Like, make sure you hit that, like, button that you're friendly. Yeah. People can go. But I think, I feel like they couldn't have a button like that for racial things, Right. But they can have it for LGBTQ. And you're just kind of like, you know what? Why don't we all just stop pretending like everything's fine? Yeah. And maybe just let these places be safe. Like, let yeah. people know where they can go. Yeah. And at least, like, call out the people that are yeah. being idiots. All right. Other important movements included the Supreme Court case Brown v. Board of Education ruled segregation of schools unconstitutional in 1954. And in 1968, the Fair Housing Act prohibited racial discrimination in the sale, rental, and financing of housing, causing the number of sundown towns to decrease. But sundown town policies didn't disappear as much as they went underground and all white towns remain even today. They are just hidden in plain sight. But I believe Holly has more to say on that. Yeah, so sundown towns and the concept that they, you know, promote are still very much alive and well. Today, they just look different and we use different language. So Mm -hmm. first of all, the FHA stuff bled into a process we call gentrification. Gentrification is when people go into urban towns and they use their big money to buy everything and quote unquote make it nicer. Mm-hmm. But when they do that, they also oust the entire population a lot of times because the people who did live there cannot any longer afford to live there. And frequently, the saviors coming in to make the town nice are a bunch of white people and they are ousting all of the black population. Mm-hmm. Because these people could not get ahead. The FHA stuff made it so that they could not afford homes in other locations. They were doing as much as doing what they could. And then you couple that with gentrifying towns where they could afford to live. And all of a sudden, where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. And you have a lot more towns that are very, very white. Yep. They just are living under the cosplay of we made it nice, mm-hmm. which is not the case. And the official list of sundown towns in the United States is linked to places that had documented city ordinances, right? They have, like, rules. Right. In other words, it was pretty much illegal for Black people to be there after dark, not just frowned upon. But there were three times as many towns, like you said, that limited their sundowniness to an unspoken rule. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you can make cities get rid of their official ordinances because they break national laws at one point in time. But it's not as easy to go and destroy those codes when they are not official and nobody is talking about them. And everybody wants to keep them because they like how nice it is. Mm -hmm. Which nice just means white. So for this reason, there are still plenty of places in the United States that have made it clear in so many words that black people had better get out before the sun sets. But how do they enforce this? Well, we can't be like legally condoning racial violence and murder, can we? Well, we kind of can. (laughs) Yeah. Modern day sundown towns don't have public lynch mobs, but they do have a police force of white men who will pull over every single black person they see and slap them with unfounded charges or worse. This is not an unfamiliar plot line to everybody right now. We have seen this in the media a lot. The Midwest is a particular hotbed of this kind of behavior, but it's a nationwide problem. You'd have to live in a cave to not see the problem our country's police has with killing black people. And why do you think that is? Because there was a time when they were encouraged to do so. Mm -hmm. And not every town stopped that. Right. Some of it, it is. It is ingrained behavior. It's systemic and it has to be pulled out at the root and they are not willing to do it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those behaviors still exist. And there are a lot of rumblings that though it did not have official ordinances, Lacine was a very sundowny town. Mm -hmm. And that's evident by their, you know, diversity or lack thereof. So if you're wondering where all the statistics about all this Kansas racism are, well, I can explain that too. In a follow-up article by David Condos for The Journal, he interviewed the same historian, Mr. Campney, and he said, quote, from 1861 to 1927, Campney's research shows that Kansas mobs lynched at least 52 black men in cities from Wichita to Lawrence to Great Bend and Pittsburgh. That's a far cry from the hundreds of lives lost to lynching in southern states such as Georgia and Mississippi. But because of the relatively small percentage of African-Americans living in Kansas at that time, the murder still sent shockwaves through the state's Black communities because in proportion, it was just as many. Mm-hmm. There's way more people, way more Black people in the South. If you're killing 52 out of, you know, 100, that's a lot. Right. That is a lot. So the message is just as impactful as the racist violence that scorched Dixie. Quote, essentially the entire Black population of the state is experiencing these events. Mm. What this means is, of course, that when it comes to Kansas, Kansas statistics kind of lie. You may see a quotation that claims that 100% of the Lacine Black population is happy there. But what that really means is that the one Black person who lives there in the middle of nowhere has not experienced any physical violence yet. Mm. So you got to read between the lines in a lot of this stuff. And remnants of the old way um, of life lie in filthy little Easter eggs all over Kansas. Take, for example, Hayes, Kansas. Now, Hayes was the site of two Civil War era race riots and 11 lynchings. And many of the hanged men were black soldiers. In one such lynching, three black soldiers were dragged out of jail, just like the case you said, and hanged from a railroad trestle by a, a cheering lynch mob, which was basically the whole town of Hayes. And if this wasn't bad enough, in 1989, the town decided to name that stretch of road where the railroad trestle was and the men were hanged, Noose Road, Mm. as a fun little nod to their history. And it was only changed to something else in 2020 when people elsewhere realized it and started to complain. But not everyone in the town was happy about this change. One resident, a man named Gail Palmberg, said, quote, To me, before the social media outburst, there was no problem with Noose Road. To me, a noose is a rope with a knot in it. What you do with it, that's your choice. 
Gross. Are you fucking kidding me? Except that road was named after a specific event wherein the people of his town decided to use a noose for hanging. Right. Of course it was. Yeah. And he continued to put his foot in his mouth by saying the follow-up statement. Quote, it's always been Noose Road. It's been there for 30 years. Black Lives Matter came up earlier and nothing was ever said about Noose Road. But all of a sudden, now it's bad. They're the same topic, my friend. What part of that was unclear? And then he sewed it all up by ranking his minor inconvenience above years of horrific racism and death with, quote, changing addresses. That is complicated. Mm. It's not just changing your checkbook. You got credit cards, businesses, insurance, banks, and passports. Sir, it is 2020. What the hell are you doing with a checkbook? Right. But also it's very easy because you could do it all online mm-hmm. very quickly. I'll give it's you... fine. I'll give you three guesses as to how, how old this man is. Okay. 53. Older. 97. Younger. <laughs> 72. 76. Okay. Very good. <laughs> So, yeah. (laughs) And modern or second-generation sundown towns, as they are still called, are not limited to police violence. No, no, that code is still far more strictly upheld by citizens who protect each other with a strict code of silence. Racism is alive and well and living in Kansas. And if you tell on the people who still enact these policies, you also end up dead. Yeah. So... This brings us back to Alonzo Brooks. I know that was a really long history lesson, but here's the thing. It's super important and it's Black History Month, so we're going to talk about it. People who acted like the concept of Alonzo's murder being racially charged was ridiculous were either born yesterday or lying and everybody knew it. The thing is, whoever did this to Alonzo is likely being protected by a centuries-old code of silence, which we just explained at length, and the people around them were terrified. So. Now we get to the uh, dodgy Reddit social media comment section portion of the show, which is where all of the theories come from. So I'm going to tack on a great big allegedly to all of this. You've been warned. Do I think it's all true? No, it's definitely not all true. People love to stir a pot. But I do strongly believe that a lot of these anonymous comments are actually from people who were at this party that night. Like, that feels pretty much inarguable. And I do believe that they are very scared. Stephen McAllister agrees with me too. And he said to the press, quote, I have stood under the trees on the bank of Middle Creek where Alonzo's body was found. It is a quiet place of profound sadness to one who knows its history, but no answers are there. I am convinced, however, that there are people who know the answers, people who have been keeping terrible secrets all these years and bearing a horrible burden. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. Now on to the web sleuths. So the biggest, shadiest, scariest information goldmine of all in this case, it comes from the comments section of the Cold Case Kansas blog about Alonzo. This piece was originally published in September of 2010. And that's long before it was picked up by any podcast or television show. It was local news at that point in time. And because this is a local-centric website, The people who responded were mostly people who knew Alonzo or knew people who were at this party. Like, this is people who were there, Mm -hmm. essentially. As at the time, the case is not receiving a ton of national news attention, so these comments are the knot from which every single thread is pulled. So let's get into them. They're all anonymous, too. Oh, good. Anonymous said, quote, I live in Lynn County and know all about this, and I hate that this happened to him and his family. 
I heard a lot about this from the inside, and that is bad what those people did to him. August 27th, 2011. Okay, cryptic start, right? Mm -hmm. Another anonymous said, quote, the police in that county did nothing to help at all. Zoe was a great guy and an even better friend. I was blessed with the opportunity to be one of his closest friends. I drove him to this party. Oh. And I know that someone from this party knows what happened to my friend. Pull your heads out of your asses and help his family and all of us in his extended family get the answers we need and so we can put the animal or animals away who took an amazing man with the world in front of him away from us. I love you, Zoe, and miss you. I know you're watching over us. February 27th, 2013. So that was definitely Justin. Wait, that would have to be Justin. unless Unless the entire story is fake. Right, no, that's Justin. Okay. But I thought we didn't like Justin. Okay. <laughs> Keep listening. Okay. I, the jury's out on Justin. Okay. <laughs> Another anonymous said, quote, I too was at that party that night and frequently think about it. From time to time, I'll Google his name to see if anything new has transpired. I'm glad to see that this thread is alive and well after so many years. I felt I gave credible, credible information to the KBI on at least two occasions, and still the investigation went nowhere. There are two people in particular from that night that I believe carry some amount of guilt. Time will tell. And that was on March 23rd, 2013. Another anonymous said, and this is in response to Justin, you say you was his closest friend and you drove him there. Why did you leave him? I believe you knew what was going to happen and you left to save your own ass. You, as well as everyone else at that party, knew and knows what happened to Alonzo. You didn't deserve a great friend like Alonzo. Trusting you is what got him killed. That's why you're not talking either. Love you, Alonzo. So there is a school of thought that Justin is not as innocent as he seems. Okay. Okay. Then we have another anonymous that said, caps locked the whole time. There are people that would be willing to talk, but not to Kansas authorities. Alonzo Brooks was held against his will in an abandoned barn and tortured to death. Sites did nothing. This information, along with the names of the people who have been bragging about having done this, were given to the KBI. Other people who cooperated were threatened that they would get the same treatment Alonzo got. This is an Emmett Till case and should get national attention. Hmm. Huh? What? Halt. Yeah. First of all, Stites. That would be referring to Sheriff Stites. This is one of the only real names I'm going to use because it is everywhere. This commenter is indicating that the police were involved in this and they covered it up. Mm -hmm. It's not a far stretch. Okay. And, and uh, that the kids were talking about it. So like, and that, okay. you know, the sheriff did something to help hide the body mm-hmm. specifically. And bragging. Hmm. Right. Yes, bragging. Pull on this thread a little harder and you'll find in several Twitter and Facebook feeds that you can see screenshots of some pretty gnarly conversations about Alonzo between an older Lacine man that repeatedly used the phrase, quote, motherfucker couldn't swim. Mm-hmm. Good. That's rough. Yep. Now, I know you can fake screenshots. I know you can fake text conversations. So you've got to use your best judgment as to whether these are real or not, but they look pretty real. And they're the same screenshots are like all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they have this guy's like picture on them and stuff. And like, I, I believe that they didn't even deny. Right. I don't see this any was a conversation. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. So For the sake of consistency, we're going to call this guy, and because I don't want to get us sued for liable or anything, we're going to call him Pete Spoon. Great. That's his name. Good name. Not going to use his real name. But it's easy to find, and I will not discourage you from looking for it, but I'm not going to say it here. There's plenty of breadcrumbs, though, and this motherfucker is a nightmare. 
But Pete isn't the only one who brags. Pete and his family, all the other spoons, own a local diner. You know, a place a couple miles away with a walk-in freezer and have no idea how to shut up. And they love being racist. It's their favorite. Mm. Pete said charming things like, quote, they will find out whose lives matter if this shit keeps happening. Oh, my God. That is a public Facebook comment. Yeah. Documented, not doctored. That happened. Mm -hmm. That is totally real. And that is not the only time he said shit like that. It is everywhere. Him and his friends joke about having KKK uniforms. They are old-timey racists. Gross. Yeah. Now, be... It's so scary. It's super scary. Now, being a racist buttfuck doesn't mean you murdered anyone or hid their dead body in a freezer to cover up somebody else's bullshit. But it does mean you, like, were mad about those things happening either, you know? Doesn't mean you didn't do them. And as it turns out, Pete Spoon has a niece who we are going to call Tammy Spoon. I know I'm changing all the names here, guys. And Tammy Spoon was the girl Alonzo was flirting with at that party. This has been confirmed. Okay. She posted on Twitter and Facebook a bunch of times with photos of her wrapped in a Confederate flag. Yum. Not a good look. (laughs) Yep. She defends the living daylights out of her family, saying they're not racist at all. But you know what? The receipts are there. They're Mm -hmm. racist. Sorry. Tammy's dad, Pete's brother, Terry Spoon, was on the city council at the time as well. So his family has been there for a really long time, and they are in like threaded into local government. And not only that, but Tammy was dating at the time. She's married to someone else now. But during this party, she was dating a young man we're going to call Larry, who is the son of a prominent area judge Hmm. and also an extremely racist man with a temper who has a history of domestic violence and racially charged harassment. Oh, yeah. Bat in a thousand. Doesn't look great for him. Then we have another guy who's mentioned in a lot of places, and we're going to call him Ronnie. Ronnie was a wrestler at the local high school. Also, super racist dude. Lots of incidents of him throwing the N-word around to people. Um, and, and he liked to get into fights. He okay. went to parties to get into fights. He liked it. Okay. And he is the guy that threw up the N-word at Alonzo earlier in the party. Mm-hmm. Like, remember his friend yeah. said, some guy said some shit to him. That's this guy because he was looking for a fight. Mm-hmm. And right after Alonzo turned up missing, Ronnie moved to Nebraska. Oh. Yes. Now, a lot of people say this is him running away, and it could have been. But there is also confirmation that this looks a little less curious because Ronnie went to college in Nebraska. And so after the summer, he was just going back. All right. But it wasn't wasn't exactly the summer, and he did have a reason to leave, and Mm -hmm. I don't think he came back, and he could have stayed away because he knew if he came back to Kansas, he was implicated in a murder, but none of that is a fact. It is all just speculation. You guys can, allegedly, you guys can do with it what you will. But this Nebraska thing is brought up all of the time as like the answer. Right. And I don't think that's really what we're looking at. Now, there are some follow-up comments from other people who knew Ronnie and said he was angry and violent and a racist piece of shit. Their words, racist piece of shit. Okay. Yep. And that's people who knew him in Nebraska. They're like, no, he's a racist piece of shit here, too. So that's good. (laughs) But that's not like official. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Back to the comments. Quote, I have always wondered why this case was left to go cold when pretty much everyone in this town knows someone who was involved or some aspect of their involvement. Come on, it's Lacine. The whole town knows what you're doing or have done within a matter of hours. This was nothing but a hate crime against a black boy who hit on a white girl at a party. I pray that someday someone will open this up 
and take a look at it and get justice for this family. Everyone knows whose freezer he was kept in before they took the body back to the search area after the cops were done searching. It's because who is involved that people are afraid to come forward and get involved. You better believe that if it was one of their kids, they would be fighting for justice to be done. Yeah. That's March 4th, 2014. Now this indicates that Larry, Mm -hmm. the boyfriend and son of a prominent judge, and some of his friends, I don't know, maybe a group from another party of rowdy belligerent people that he called over, killed Alonzo because of his involvement with Tammy. Mm -hmm. Who would go on, and I debated to mention this or not, to say to some sources that Alonzo forced himself on her. Right. She just like needed help. This very much looks like the case you spoke about. It looks like Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. It looks like the same as all of them. So then what would have happened is Pete and Terry Spoon, Tammy's father and uncle, came to help clean up. Mm -hmm. So what they did is take Alonzo's body and put it in the walk-in freezer at the family diner Mm -hmm. where they held it until the police were done their search and then they put him in the creek right? to make it look like some horrible accident that Mm -hmm. nobody noticed before. And I know everyone's going to say, but that that freezer was where they kept food. You would have noticed if they kept bodies in there. There's tons of pictures of um, squirrels they shot in that freezer. So they for sure kept dead shit in there with like no, yeah. no worries about it. And people weren't going in there probably a lot because it was full of fucking squirrels. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. Anyway, that's the theory that I, I tend to align with. And so does most people, right. actually. And then we have a bomb that was dropped that I foreshadowed in the last installment of this. Anonymous says, Today marks 10 years that my nephew was taken from his mom, brother, and sisters, and of course the entire family. I got a call from my mom, Alonzo's grandma, at work telling me that my sister called and said he hadn't gotten home from a party he had attended on Saturday night. I told my mom, oh, he'll show up, taking the matter very lightly. Later that day, I was told that my nephew and nieces were headed to the town that the party was held to get information from anyone that might know where he might be. After hearing this, I knew there was more to it than him not coming home, so some of my other brothers and sister, along with myself, headed to my sister's house in Gardner. When we arrived, I knew that it was very serious from the reaction I received from my sister, Alonzo's mother. Although Alonzo was of age, he is still my sister's baby. It hurts to see any of my siblings hurt, but this was very different. A hurt I never thought any one of us would ever have to go through. I guess I never really knew the hate we have in this world. You hear about this stuff somewhere else, somewhere in a small town. Yeah, that's right, a small town. That's where Alonzo went to and where he was murdered. Today I came to this site, one, because there it's been 10 years, and two, to see if there were new comments added. Yep, there is. And it amazes me what I've read and what some of you still hold as a secret because you are afraid. Let me start off by saying this. We are from Topeka, Kansas, and we have crime. Who doesn't? And yes, there are a few cold cases here too. This is the capital of Kansas, but I know for sure, not only here, but in other big cities, that we have more serious criminals that people are and were afraid of. But that didn't stop them from helping get these criminals locked up and out of their community. They, just like you, didn't want them running their streets or their lives, as you are allowing them to do to yours. So here's a thought, Lynn County citizens. Take back your community and take back your lives and put whomever did this away for a long time. Why allow them to run your town, let alone your lives? Step up and let the authorities know what you may know. Yes, they, authorities, might have already heard some of the information you have put out here and maybe not 
Maybe not, but no one knows unless you come forward and speak what you know. Why let these racist POS run free and you run scared? I know for sure that Alonzo's family would greatly appreciate it. Now for the so-called friend that took my nephew to this party. Justin. You may not have physically did him harm, but you did put him there knowing what kind of POS people were there. You call yourself a true good friend. No friend would have left anyone there knowing how these POS people were reacting to his presence unless you had a motive, in which some of the rumors that we heard about your involvement are true. I think you need to get your head out of your ass and realize you are nothing but a POS as well. You claim to care. I beg to differ. I was the aunt that allowed you into my sister's house before the vigil we held in Gardner. If I knew then who you were, yes, I would have still let you in. But who's to say if you would have left walking? God was looking out for you that day. Your story changed every time you were questioned by the family and the authorities. Why? I wish for you and all involved that you all die a slow and painful death. For those who have not come forward, I hope you don't ever need someone to help you or your family out in a situation like this and that no one comes to your aid. I also wish this weighs on your conscience and you lose sleep until you come forth. Remember, karma is a bitch. So this is clearly Alonzo's aunt. Yeah. This, this is her. She's in the comments way more times. She's offering up how to contact her and how to contact Alonzo's family. This is her. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of ways to confirm that, like I said. Anyway, this proves that his family... They don't really like Justin and Tyler and Daniel, the friends who are portrayed in the uh, Unsolved Mysteries episode as like people who were beloved to Alonzo and and everyone. They don't like them. Mm -hmm. They especially don't like Justin. Mm -hmm. And there are those who believe that Alonzo was brought to that party like a lamb to the slaughter. Yeah. That everyone was acting in racist cahoots so they could kill a black man that night. Yeah. either, Either that's the case. Because I know that that is a possibility that has happened. Right. It feels really hard for me to, like, imagine that, though. So... Yeah, this isn't the theory that I align with the most. Yeah. I would align more with... It was just, like, a week... It was was probably an abnormal thing that Alonzo even went to this party with them. Um, These were friends that he probably played like pickup football with. Exactly. And they were like, oh, we have this party tonight and Mm -hmm. you can get us beer. Like, well, we're going to go to this party. Yes. And he was like, yeah, all right, cool. We'll go for a little bit. And then he, while there, he's already been drinking a little bit. So Mm -hmm. he's feeling loose. And Alonzo's like Mm -hmm. a sociable guy is probably talking to this girl, which I'm sure he doesn't even necessarily know the age of. But she's 16 yep. and he's 23. Yep. Still gross, but he's talking to her. Maybe he thinks she's 18. Maybe it's harmless. I don't know. But they're still flirting and it's whatever. Yeah. And then maybe they do kiss. Maybe they're making out. Yeah, we have no maybe they're dancing on the dance floor. Maybe they're just talking in a very flirtatious manner. And then the boyfriend sees this happen. Yep. And the girlfriend is immediately like, oh, like, no, I didn't even want to talk to him. And this was gross. And then all hell breaks breaks loose. This black man was trying to take advantage of me. That, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that is necessarily the through line in this case. I don't know who this girl is as a human more than I can find online. And Mm -hmm. I did not go deep into her because I was starting to lose my mind with these people. Um, But I do know that that is part of the narrative. Yeah. And nothing incites this like good old boy racial violence. Mm -hmm. Like thinking that one of their women is being taken by a black man. Yeah. 
Have you ever been to a party? Like, I mean, obviously, we've never had to experience something this horrific. Mm -hmm. But have you ever been to a party like that where there was one person that they kind of ganged up on because they were flirting with, like, somebody's girlfriend? And it was clearly, like, someone that was really not welcomed there? Have you ever, like, been a part of that? I don't think so. So I have. Really? And it is scary. And yes. and it's clear. It is is always clear whether they are black or any other minority or even white. But they walk in, and you can and you know right away that most of the people at the party find it uncomfortable to have this person there. Yikes. And then something always escalates because one, two, three, four, five. It keeps spreading. Just mm-hmm. everyone is starting to also get on this train of like you're right, that person shouldn't even be here. They're not part of this group. Yeah. They shouldn't be here. And uh, and I have been in a room with that, and it's very unsettling, and it's not comfortable. So now that brings us to the third school of thought on Justin. And I can see this one being a little more true, but I don't necessarily subscribe to it. Um, But I can see it happening. Some people think that Justin saw Alonzo get attacked. So he saw the beginning of this, maybe even most of it, maybe even the end of it, and then ran scared. Mm-hmm. Instead of like trying to help or sticking around, he was like, oh shit, this is bad. And he just cut and ran. Yeah. And never mentioned seeing what he saw. Right. And he faked all of the car stuff and lied just to kind of get out of being judged for his cowardice and whatever word you would use to describe going to a strip club afterwards. Right. I don't know that that's true. It is what some people are saying. But I think that that is more believable than like he knew he was bringing a black guy there for people to kill. Mm-hmm. You just said it's scary. It is scary. And it's uncomfortable. And you don't always think that people are like, I was never in a situation where I thought that somebody would die. Right. But they did get beat up. Yikes. And I mean, everything in all of my situations, things got handled appropriately. But it still escalated faster before like authorities can get there. And just to play devil's advocate in that situation, do you want to step up and tell this mob beating the shit out of the no, black guy that either. you brought him there? No. You're done next. No. That, well, exactly. Exactly. You don't want to be the person that brought them there. Or also, I've seen, um, the or at least the other case could be, somebody could have gone up to Justin and just been like, you better get out of here. This is going to get ugly. Mm-hmm. Very also very true, mm-hmm. and to me that feels a lot closer to something real. Mm-hmm. I this is just I am one human with an opinion, and that's mm-hmm. what I think. But or like, guys, th- is this your buddy? You brought him here. And be like, I just like play football with him. I didn't know. Yeah, I barely well, know him. You better get out of here. Exactly. Don't yep. look back and don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That could be what happened. So. There is all that information. And then the comments devolve into a bunch of name calling for a while with three exceptions. And these comments are the three important ones. Anonymous said, as someone who lived in the area and went to this school district, I can tell you personally that racism exists there. Racism was the reason I left Prairie View. That's the, uh, the Lynn County School. The teachers there at the time were nothing but bigoted pieces of crap. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Some of the kids I went to school with were the same way. They like to say things behind your back but they were cowards when it came time to face up. My mother was raised there also, and she would not let me sleep over at any friend's houses inside of Lacine. When we all heard about what happened to that man, the first thing my mother out of my mother's mouth was, I bet it was the Spoon Boys. 
Hmm. It's funny that when reading all of this, this name is brought up so many times. I never knew any spoons except the teacher I had. I am black myself. So when I heard this, it sent a shiver down my spine because the only thing I could think was this could have happened to me. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to cry. I know. That's really scary and sad. Then uh, there's a piece of another comment that I'm going to read. The whole comment is like kind of fighty and not not super relevant. But the, but there's one sentence where they say, quote, I hear those brothers in the past would strap their hunting dogs shock collars to people of color. This comes up a couple of times. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's like a, a crazy rumor that's graphic that somebody likes to make up or if these guys did this in the past. Yeah. I don't know, but it's there. One last comment. Anonymous said, quote, I'm also changing this name. Sandy Menken would brag about her uncles, the Spoon Brothers, being racist and making people disappear. She had a black friend she would get weed from and would take him to Le Seine to mess with him, telling him that the last guy ended up in a creek. Or she would tell people she's going to, quote, call her uncles if she got upset. It's well known, and they brag about it. Yep. And that was on July 1st, 2020. Yep. So there are also those who think the Spoon Brothers were responsible for Alonzo's death. They think that maybe um, they were at this party. Some people are like, they were like the 30-some-odd-year-old men at this party, which is super mm. weird. But it happens. There's old guys at parties sometimes. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to rule that out. Also, some people say that after the incident with Tammy, the um, her she... Or her boyfriend called them and they're like, come take care of this guy. And they came out and mm. drug him off into a shed. So to be very honest, this doesn't seem out of the realm of possibilities either. Or they're out of the realm of possibilities for them. Um, but a lot of people also think that the Spoon Boys are a red herring. They're like, we don't think he killed Alonzo, but we think that they hit him. Okay. It is suspected that where they took Alonzo was that white shed that conveniently disappeared. Right. Remember I said in the mm -hmm. last episode? And so it disappeared because... That's where they would have killed him and tortured him. Mm -hmm. And so there would have been DNA evidence all over that. Right, right. There are also some people who say that they stored him in that shed underneath the hay for a while and that they maybe came back later and moved him to the walk-in or maybe left him there for a time. And then they waited for the cops to finish looking before they put him at the spot in the creek. Now, all of these things are definitely possible. Mm -hmm. They all seem to add up, but they also all involve the same people. Right, right. So... Why does everybody think he was in a freezer? That's simple. Because the level of decomposition that occurs in water for 30 days would have probably destroyed his body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, he was like well-preserved. That's what his family said. I mean, this is a three-foot-deep creek in Kansas in the spring. It's not going to be cold. It's also not necessarily going to be somewhere where you can be totally submerged everywhere, especially yeah. with fluctuating water levels. But still, mm-hmm. Any part of his skin that was in the water for the whole time is going to start, like, slipping and, like, it's yeah, going to be gross. Yeah, like, little critters and they would have been eaten, little amphibians. Yeah, yeah, no, it's going to be horrible. Munching. Don't Don't look it up. Don't don't look up what water damage does to a body after 30 days, because I did for you, and it's disgusting. I'm looking it up. Don't do it. <laughs> um, there are variations on exactly what might happen to a body in water based on the intricacies of their conditions, but it is never pretty, <laughs> ever. It never looks fine. And you certainly wouldn't think that a person who had been in a creek for 30 days dead was just sleeping or that the color in their face was the same as it was in life. And that's what Alonzo's family said when they found him. For that matter, if his body had been just even outside or in the shed for 30 days, it still would have been pretty broken down. 
right? First of all, before decay got the chance to do its whole job, if you were outside and not in a shed, scavengers would have likely made a pretty big dent in the process. I mean, Mm -hmm. Kansas is home to a lot of carnivorous birds, including several species of vulture, not to mention nutria, which are giant rats with orange beaver teeth that live in creeks. Mm -hmm. I couldn't make this (laughs) shit up if I tried. It's true, I swear, but they won't eat a body. They just like plants and bugs. I just wanted to mention them. (laughs) Cute. Yeah. Still, even without scavengers, let's say they left the body alone. If the body is still outside in humid, temperate climate, like Kansas in April is not freezing. Right. It's, you know, like 60, 70 degrees, 50, 40 degrees at night. And it's humid all the time, Mm -hmm. which means the body is going to be considerably broken down as well. After a month, an untouched body left outside in this kind of condition is going to start to liquefy. Right. So I'm gonna be yeah, like, wouldn't it have just been like unrecognizable? Well, in some cases, three weeks is all it takes for a body to be skeletonized. Exactly, yeah. But here's the thing with decomposition. While we can say most times it happens like this, mm-hmm. sometimes it just doesn't. Sometimes it's different. Some people have different ways that they are preserved or different conditions that do wild things to a body and they Mm -hmm. don't break down. There are exceptions to lots of rules. However, the general consensus of most of science is that he would not have been in very good shape were he to have been laying outside in the elements or submerged in a creek or in a hot shed. Exactly. None of this is going well. I know the heat would have like... Like, yeah. sped that process right up. Precisely. I did it's not that in dry. chemistry. Good job. It's not dry heat either. So it's not like you're going to find a mummified body. Mm. It's, like, humid. Exactly. So. But when the when the family found him, his face was, like. That's what they said. They said yeah. it looked kind of like he was sleeping and the color was still in his face. No. Yeah, no. I, exactly. I really don't think that that's possible, though I do acknowledge that it could be. Let's put right. it that way. Also. The autopsy states that he had no water in his lungs. Yeah, so that's interesting, too. And this fact strongly indicates that Alonzo was dead when he entered the creek. Okay. Because if you're breathing when you are submerged in a body of water, you're going to suck water right up into your lungs. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's a sure thing, because in like 7 to 15% of drowning incidents, the victims present with dry lungs because they experience, what I mentioned before, an event that's called dry drowning. And it is my worst fear because it's mostly talked about in relation to children who slip underwater and then slowly drown later that night in their beds while they're asleep. Oh. It's awful. Do not look this one up either. I'll save you the trouble. How does dry drowning happen? Yes. Dry drowning occurs when water is inhaled and causes muscle spasms in the airway, which block airflow. With secondary drowning, water is inhaled into the lungs. The water irritates the lungs, which would cause them to fill with fluid. And this is known as pulmonary edema, making it difficult to breathe. Right. This is rare and weird and not incredibly common in a violent situation with a grown-ass man or a guy who fell in a creek. He was way more likely to have been murdered than... And that's been confirmed now. But in the strictest scientific sense, it is possible for him to have drowned and not have water in his lungs. Okay. Not likely. So, like, almost he, like, okay, so where his body was found, was it in the water or was it, like, on some brush? It was on a pile of brush. Okay. So it was not in the water, but what the medical examiner said was it was dumped in the water, 
And then water levels rose and dislodged him from the spot where he was stuck in the creek and carried him downstream to this other like island of brush where he caught then water levels dropped and it appeared as though he were laying on an island. Right. So that would indicate that he was in that creek for a while. Like the whole time people were looking for him, he was in the creek. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. But again, I am only presenting the percentage of possibility there. And it's it's pretty low. Yeah. Right. Because one of the theories they have there is that like, oh, we think he was really drunk and high at the end of the night and he stumbled over by the creek and wanted to go swimming and then he fell and hit his head and drowned in the creek and it was a horrible accident, but no one was to blame. And he threw off his shoes and his hat as he was running to the creek for a swim. (laughs) But just his boots and his hat, not any other clothes. And he had like 18 layers of clothes on. Right. Is it both his boots? Yeah. Okay. One boot was like out by the street and the other one was down by the creek. So he hopped for a while. Right. Yeah. Well, sometimes it takes a while to untie while you're running. So like you leave one and then you're like hopping, trying to untie. Probably got a little further down. Now, people's speculation about those specific items is that they came off at some point in time and someone threw them out of the window of a car. Mm. And that's how they landed where they did. Yeah, maybe. Because that's, I mean, that's kind of what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And that's what um what his best friend says too. He's like, it looks like someone just tossed them out of the car and they landed like in the grass. Mm-hmm. And that, unfortunately, that's all of the facts that we have. That is the most information that I guess I am willing to put out in the world. There's more and it gets... But those it, are more like real... These are marine. more concrete. Yeah. yeah. It, it, after this, it kind of wanders off mm-hmm. into the... Like conspiracy, yeah. People level. who are looking for for attention by claiming their involvement, possibly, okay. and um, yeah, they just don't seem as credible as okay. the other stuff. Yeah. There are Reddit feeds for days on this that pick yeah. apart every single thing. A lot of them also pick apart comments that are like definitely don't need to be picked apart. Like they talk about the spoons, saying like I have a squirrel taxidermied in my freezer, and a man comments, "How much do you want for it?" a taxidermy squirrel and he's like 300 for this but I also have a black one that's a that's a black squirrel he's not saying I also have like a black human in my freezer that I will taxidermy for you that's insane right yeah no one has a whole ass taxidermied black guy oh maybe they do I don't really know but like that is way off into science fiction land Mm -hmm. so there's a lot more stuff like that yeah yeah so I think what we covered is like the closest we could agreed possibly get yeah. right now. Yeah, what I think, I think that Alonzo fooled around with that girl or talked to her too close or somebody didn't like it and uh, her boyfriend saw it happening and she said, I didn't want that to happen. He's the worst. And then the boyfriend got really mad and he rounded up all his good old boyfriends from another party and that party and they at the end of the night advanced on Alonzo and killed him then they called the Spoon Brothers to clean up the mess mm-hmm. and on the way there they forgot his hat and boots or some shit that got thrown into the brush uh, then they kept him in the back of a walk-in some walk-ins have like two tiers too they sometimes do. there's like the back of the walk-in yeah. is the freezer and then there's the fridge in the front so if they, he was in the back like not anyone necessarily mm-hmm. had to go in there 
And this this diner is run by the Spoon family. Right. So it would yeah. have just all been people. I know. I don't think there. it's weird that they could have kept him in there without anyone either. knowing. I don't either. And then they, uh, once they thought the, the coast was clear, they knew they couldn't keep him in there forever. So they threw him in the creek thinking like, or they threw him on this little like mm-hmm. area thinking like, oh, this is going to look like an accident. Right. And nobody is going to tell. Because if they do, they know that they too are fucked. Mm-hmm. That's $100,000 worth of fear. So if if I had to guess, that would be the theory that I would put my money on. Yeah. There is no confirmation of any of that. It mm-hmm. just, to me, seems like it checks the most boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And the case is open. We can only hope that someone comes forward and says something. Even anonymously. I mean, so- somebody, somebody saw, more than one somebody's right. probably saw something. And for all we know, the police are currently in possession of some of that information yeah. because they did say they have new evidence. Mm-hmm. So I'm extremely interested to see where this case is going to go because mm-hmm. I'm hoping it continues to move forward. Me too. Yeah. So that, that is, uh, that's Alonzo Brooks. Right. Yeah. Toast. Toast. Good golly. Well, I'm going to say... Alonzo's family, his mom and his brothers and sisters and his dad and stepmom and all and his stepdad and all the people who were, I mean, like devastated by this. Mm-hmm. He had lots of friends and family and his nieces and nephews who loved him and mm-hmm. who all missed this person. So toast them. And who all now have an added fear of just being themselves in the yeah. town. Yeah. You know, just... Fortunately, they live in Gardner, not Lee Yeah, No, I know, but it's Which still... Is, yeah, I know. It's still not... I didn't go into the history in Gardner, but yeah. there also were like 10 people from Gardner at this party, and they mm-hmm. are not talking either, so... Yeah. yeah, just in general, though, just like having to have it more as like, oh, this is a thing that has happened, but now it's a thing that has happened in our backyard. Yeah. Yep. Like to a family member. And to Stephen McAllister for bringing this, for bringing shit back. Yeah. And for getting, like, a second autopsy and stuff. Yes. So, cheers to him. Cheers. Oh. To Alonzo. To Alonzo. I don't approve of you flirting with a 16-year-old. You 100% did not deserve any of this. No. This was horrifying. You know what? I don't know that I can if we this case. Because it would never happen to us. Yeah. This would never, ever happen to us. We are privileged no. enough to say we would never be dead in this case. Mm-hmm. We would not. And unfortunately, that's all I got this week. We wouldn't be dead. No. But we would speak up. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to not tell. No. I, I don't think I can. I mean, like, I can't speak to that either, you know, because I don't live in a place where I'm terrified of actual death if I say something. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that's like. But I like to think that I, I could not sit on knowing a murder happened Mm -hmm. for years. Right. So, yeah. I really hope somebody, somebody says something and soon. And that's all. Right. Good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. 
and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Well done, Dr. Skeletons in the Closet.